0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Uh, I'm very pleased to um, be, that the Department of Medicine is sponsoring this, um, is co-sponsoring this Grand Rounds with the Section of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology, uh, and we have one of our own um, excellent speakers here today. I'm uh, welcoming to Dr. David Nierenberg, the Section Chief for Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology, to introduce today's speaker. Thanks so much, Kelly. Uh, it's one of my real pleasures uh, every year uh, to get to introduce my good friend and colleague Lionel Lewis, who will be giving Grand Rounds today. Sometimes I feel we slightly shortchange our local speakers, so I, I do want to give a little bit of his background because it is so impressive. Um, he was born in Wales and lived about 60 miles outside of Cardiff, um, and actually, he dates his interest in clinical pharmacology and toxicology to when he was a very young lad there, and um, had colic a lot. And his grandmother, actually, was able to do weight-based and age-based, and actually local pharmacogenomic-based dosing of a hypnotic for that had the same active ingredient as Glenfiddich. Um, <laughs> apparently, it worked well. Uh, He survived that uh, therapeutic adventure and went on to get his undergraduate degree, which in England is six years combination of what we would call college and medical school at Cambridge, took some of his clinical rotations back in Cardiff, um, did his residency there partly, and then went to London at several of the most famous teaching hospitals, finishing up with a fellowship in clinical pharmacology in the superb internationally known unit at Guy's Hospital. Then did a second fellowship in clinical pharmacology at Johns Hopkins, where I first came to know him and tried to recruit him to Dartmouth back in 1991. Uh, after I had been on call for 12 years straight every night, I thought that was enough. Lionel was the superb candidate that we identified, but due to um, visa requirements, had to return to England for two years. But we were lucky enough to snag him and his wife from London in 1990 he arrived. And since he arrived in 93, he has not only been a wonderful colleague and friend, uh, but has just added so much to our activities in our section. He's a terrific teacher, second-year medical students, fourth-year students in clinical forum, the residents that we take on our clinical electives, a superb clinician um, doing his outpatient and inpatient consultations. And I'm even more impressed now Uh, that we have the computerized medical record so I can finally read his notes. (laughs) Uh, He serves on um, a number of national committees, scientific review committees, scientific boards, has been elected twice to the American Board of Clinical Pharmacology, and currently serves as our active uh, president of that national American Board of Clinical Pharmacology, which is a real uh, coup for Geisel and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. But where he really shines, if all of that isn't enough, is in the area of translational clinical research, looking at the intersection of new drugs, new therapeutic entities, often tried for the first time in man here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And he's been incredibly academically productive in that area. He has more than 150 peer-reviewed articles that have been published, Um, And in addition, if that's not a heavy enough load, nights and weekends, uh, he has been a co-author for three editions of the major English national textbook in clinical pharmacology. So not only the complete triple threat, superb clinician, wonderful teacher, and a superb and nationally recognized expert in translational research, But as you'll see today, he has been really interested in the intersection of clinical pharmacology applied to new drug entities being treated oncologic diseases, and that's where he really shines. Often we can't tell where he's going from the title, but it will be in that area. And I'm very pleased to um, welcome our colleague and friend, Dr. Lionel Lewis.
1: Thanks, Dave, for that uh, very, uh, uh, shall I say, a challenging introduction. Uh, I'm not so sure I deserve all the accolades you gave me, but I'll try and live up to them today. So um, my task today was set upon me as our section tends to give uh, at least one um, grand rounds a year, and it turns out that this is my, my turn. Um, so having had some thought about what I was going to talk about, I'm going to tell you a story about victims and perpetrators Um, but I want to make it clear that I'm as as conflicted as anybody can be. Um, I have support from various national institutes, many many drug companies from the point of view of supporting my clinical trials. Uh, I consult for a number of entities including um, a couple of pharmaceutical companies as a consultant to G1 Therapeutics and Seven Hills Pharma and I'm employed by Dartmouth College and some people might say well that's not a conflict. But you guys may well be aware that Dartmouth was invested in a small drug com- uh, company called Medarex some years ago. And Medarex had a number of products that they took through. And two of those products are now billion-dollar drugs, namely <laughs> nivolumab, an anti-PD-1 monoclonal, and also ipilimumab, an anti-CTLA-4. So I'm just telling you, I work for Dartmouth College, but I'm not going to talk about those drugs. Okay, so what are we going to talk about today? I want to start off with a case which I think is an important aspect of the Grand Rounds, which links my interest in phase one sort of development of drugs but also being an observant clinician. I then want to talk a bit about models and the way we interpret drug-drug interaction studies and then I want to tell you uh, how I've been involved in some national studies that don't take the classical way of looking at drug-drug interactions, but take a more sophisticated PK-PD pharmacogenomics way of trying to, d- d- trying to dissect these problems in a large phase 3 study. So that's the outline uh, of my talk. So let's start with the case. This was a gentleman uh, some years ago now who was a 67-year-old male, and he had metastatic colon carcinoma. He unfortunately had... Uh, progressed through very standard therapeutic regimens, the classical urinotekin, 5-FU, leucovorin, which is standard these days, plus or minus bevacizumab, which wasn't available at that time. He's also taken capecitabine, the fi- oral 5-FU oxaliplatin, and he also went through oral topotecan and lapatinib. So this guy had been heavily pretreated and unfortunately didn't have many other options. So we discussed with him the possibility that he would enter a study of a compound which at that time was only known as YM155. Unfortunately, many of the drugs that I deal with actually don't have generic names at this point, Uh, but this drug now has a name and it's called sepantronium bromide. The bad news is it's never made it to market. Um, His therapy at the time that he entered the study was warfarin, six to seven milligrams a day, giving him an INR somewhere around 2.5, 2.8. Um, and he was on that because he'd had a previous prior deep vein thrombosis. His only other therapy was one multivitamin tablet, uh, which was fairly standard for him. He had no other drug therapy, no nutraceuticals, no herbals, and he wasn't on a funny diet where he was eating lots and lots of um, green vegetables. So... He needed a port because the, the regimen was a seven-day infusion as an inpatient, given this drug for the first time to man. I think it had been given to about three people before he was on the study. So we, we gave we him port because it was an IV infusion, continuous infusion. His warfarin was stopped initially, and he started off at this particular dose of YM155. And what I want to share with you is, is this was his, um, when we restarted his warfarin, as you can see here, He was on zero initially. We started him at four milligrams and his INR sort of slowly crept up while he was on the first week's treatment. And he was an inpatient for seven days, which is a nice thing that we could obviously observe him. If you look at the second cycle, he came in, his INR when on treatment was around three. And then we started YM155. And within a couple of days, we had a bit of a shock. Um, I got... I, don't, I wondered about a possible problem with this drug based on the fact that the investigator's brochure talked about in vitro studies looking at SIP interactions where this is classical preclinical pharmacology that's done for all drugs these days and I wasn't quite sure whether this drug could potentially have inhibition of SIP enzymes in vivo and that's the difference the in vitro studies are fine they're done in hepatocyte uh, cultures but sometimes they don't exactly uh, predict. And what happened was, on this same dose, giving our infusion of YM155 over seven days, his INR went somewhere in the region of, and now it would be reported as above 10, but his was about 13. We stopped his warfarin, we gave him some oral vitamin K, and he, without any adverse hemorrhaging, his INR slowly settled back. This was the end of his second cycle. As you can see, his his dose of... uh, Warfarin was sort of recommenced, and his INR crept up again. So we thought, hmm, this is a very interesting thing. Is it a drug-drug interaction or not? Well, there's many things you can do, and we were brave enough to treat the guy again in, this, in his third cycle. And this time, we were very cautious with his dosing, starting him around 2, and here you can see that his INR this time went up to 6. We stopped the warfarin. It went down. And as you note, that the fact that the INR sort of stayed sort of, fairly low, having stopped his warfarin, and we con- continued him on a relatively low uh, warfarin dose, and he s- still had problems. So we thought this was, would, rec- would meet the criteria uh, that we sometimes use to evaluate a drug-drug interaction caused, called the Naranjo criteria. And the questions we ask ourselves, were the drugs, were the drugs s- administered at the same time? And the answer is he was receiving this new drug plus warfarin at the same time. I can tell you that his LFTs were normal. There was no other drugs being given. He wasn't on a funny diet. There was nothing else that we could figure out was causing this. So the time frame fits. Had it been reported before? What do you guys think? So this is a new drug being given to about six people in humans, not in the FDA approval labels, doesn't have a label. Had anybody reported this before? No. They probably hadn't seen it before. Other causes ruled out. Did we rule out other causes? Mm-hmm. To the best of our ability, yeah. we did. We didn't think it was LFTs. We didn't think he had a funny vitamin K diet. We didn't think there was problems with unforeseen other agents that were being administered. He wasn't taking herbals. Mm-hmm. We didn't mm-hmm. know. We did. As far as I know, he was not surreptitiously mm-hmm. taking any other recreational mm-hmm. compounds. But as far as we were concerned, there was there was nothing else. And then, did it resolve? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. If we stopped his well, if we stopped his warfarin and the INR came down, and it seems as if, in general, we did rechallenge him, and yes, it happened again that we had an elevation in his INR. So based on these criteria, we'd say he'd got eight out of ten points, which is pointing us, yes, this is a drug-drug interaction. And this is a fairly standard paradigm that we use as clinical pharmacologists to really judge whether the likelihood of a drug-drug interaction occurs. So let's ask you guys... Let's see how you think about this type of drug-drug interaction with a drug that is famous for drug-drug interactions. And the question is, what CYP450 is likely to be involved here? Because, as you know, warfarin is metabolized. Hardly any of it's excreted or goes through the liver, right? So which of the CYPs do you think is the problem? And I'm going to ask you guys to vote. Is it 1A2? And you all know what that does? 3 is. 3A4, 3A5, which is the commonest CYP? but 60% of drugs go through that pathway. Is it 3A7? I'll tell you no. that's only expressed in the fetus. So, probably not the answer, right? 2B6? No, maybe. 2C9? 2C19? And I'll give you one more option, just to make it a little bit more difficult. 2D6. All of these, these, this is about 5% of drugs, this is about 50% of drugs, not expressed in the adult, less than five yeah. percent. This is about these two are about twenty percent of drugs, and this is about twenty-five percent of drugs. So, anybody brave enough to offer me the right answer? Anybody vote for A? B? A
0: mm-hmm.
1: couple of B's. B's they like B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, commonest. Mm-hmm. C. I gave you the answer. It's not that. Two B, D. E. Mm-hmm. Nobody, for, oh, a oh, couple of people there just about holding their hands up, yes. And the real answer, 2C9. Well done. So, just as a reminder, this is warfarin, right? It's an enantiomer. It has an RMS sort of two-sided right and left hands. The S-warfarin is really the, the most potent aspect. This is the one that affects the vitamin K epoxide reductase and it targets that enzyme and stops essentially the oxidation of of the uh, coagulation factors and subsequently uh, reduces the amount of coagulant activity. This is just the target. This is the metabolic profile. And for those of you who read the product inserts on a regular basis, as I know you all do, will know that the FDA in about 2009-2010 inserted in the product label a recommendation or a guidance based on the <laughs> genotypes of 2C9 and the genotype of the v epoxide uh, complex one that you could guide the dosing based on those genotypes for a patient. Well, we wondered about this gentleman's genotype. Um, this shows you that the 2C9 as you get what we call the poor metabolizers, the star 3, star 3. You get a much reduced clearance. And that if you get a certain haplotype of this, you need higher doses and lower doses of vitamin K. And using those two aspects of genotyping, you can get guidance as regards what dose of warfarin you should uh, start the patient on and maintain them on. So this gentleman actually was wild type and star one star two, which this is the wild type allele, he sort of had probably enough normal CYP2C9. So where I was going with this is, he really didn't have Mm -hmm. an abnormal genotype. He could handle warfarin normally, as if you think from his history, His standard dosing was six to seven milligrams originally. That's the set of typical median dose that people are on. So this, in our mind, was a drug-drug interaction. We reported it, obviously, to the company, and we put in a MedWatch form as well. Okay, so that's the case. So we're going to talk about drug-drug interactions, but we're not going to talk now specifically about clinical drug-drug interactions. We're going to talk about how we study them. In preclinical, or rather in early clinical development of novel compounds. And I have to admit here, Kelly, I'm, I'm going to talk about off label use of certain drugs, but it's only in the research arena. It's not in the clinical arena. So I still think I'm okay. So I still think I'm okay. All right. So. Many of you may not be very familiar with a drug called venetoclax, so I thought I'd just remind you about this thing. This was actually approved in about 2017. It's an oral BCL2 inhibitor. It actually inhibits uh, the proteins that promote apoptosis. And this, sorry, inhibits the proteins that inhibit apoptosis, and it promotes apoptosis of cells. It was incredibly uh, effective in CLL and also in AML in combination. Long half-life, metabolized by our most common CYP, little or nothing in the urine. The problem was it actually killed a few people in its early development because it was so effective at killing the CLL cells that people didn't realize that they were gonna develop serious tumor lysis syndrome with hyperkalemia and renal dysfunction. And this drug development was stopped for a little while, actually, while while they developed a monitoring process to guard against this happening. It drops the platelets. It's got some mild GI symptoms and hepatitis. But really and truly, this was a big, big, big move forward. Where we were involved in this is on the in vitro models, the drugs metabolized by CYP3A. So we wanted to perform a drug-drug interaction study and ask the question, if you used a potent CYP3A inhibitor, and many of you are familiar with the azoles, Ketoconazole is probably not the drug that's used so widely these days. You're more thinking of fluconazole, posiconazole, or voriconazole. The latter two are somewhat more potent inhibitors of CYP3A than fluconazole is. But we use ketoconazole as our um, paradigm and our model, is as an inhibitor of CYP3A. And our hypothesis that we wanted to test was that if we gave ketoconazole, to patients or to subjects who were on venic- venetoclax, we would derange their metabolism such that the concentrations of venetoclax would increase remarkably, and therefore the likelihood of toxicity was there. So, our uh, objective really was to quantify this effect in, venet- in patients taking venetoclax who were predominantly patients with hematological malignancies. So, this was the design of the study, fairly typical design for these types of studies. Here's the drug i.e. this is going to be our victim and this is our perpetrator because this affects the metabolism of that guy potentially causing, or we think it, we would predict it metabol, uh, affects the metabolism of venetoclax, but possibly causing toxicity by increasing the concentrations, reducing the clearance. So we start off, we gave the patients what is a relatively low dose of venetoclax, and we do the pharmacokinetics because it has a long half-life over four half-lives. This is what we call venetoclax alone. We then put the patients on ketoconazole at a standard dose, 400 milligrams once a day, and we leave them on that for at least three days so that they get an established uh, ketoconazole steady state and subsequently get established inhibition of CYP3A. Then we we again give a second dose of venetoclax at this point, and we follow the PK. And then at the end of this point, The patients can go on regular venetoclax, which is what happened, so that they may get benefit from it. So it wasn't just this particular, shall I say, from the patient perspective, this was the scientific objective of the the study, but there was a potential for the patient to benefit from receiving this drug, which wasn't on the market at the time. So that's the study outline. This is the primary data. Here we have what we call the venetoclax alone profile. Goes up, goes down, Open circles, and this is with the venetoclax PK when in the presence of ketoconazole. Significant increase in AUC and Cmax, and interestingly, we also measured the the primary metabolite, the M27 metabolite, which is formed by CYP3A, and as you can see here, as you'd predict if it's going to inhibit the metabolism, you'd expect less metabolite to be formed, and that's what we saw. This is without this is venetoclax alone, and this is venetoclax in the presence of ketoconazole. From the point of view of the production of metabolite, so I think we've got fairly, shall I say, substantive data here, that in the if you use ketoconazole with venetoclax, there's going to be a significant drug-drug interaction. If you look at the the, the sort of other way of looking at this is you look at the AUCs and the Cmax for all patients. We 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 actually treated 11 patients um, at three centres. And our center was the main contributor. We did seven patients. You can see that the AUC and CMAX both increase, But there's huge variability for any one patient, which is very difficult to predict how, that patient, how much of that patient is metabolism is going to change. It's very variable. If you look at the data from the perspective of numerical data, I'd like just to highlight a couple of things. We look at the ratio of the AUC or CMAX comparing with the ketoconazole, versus monotherapy, i.e. venetoclax alone. And you can see that comparing the ratios, you get a, point, you get a two to 4 six-fold increase in uh, the parameters. And they all, uh, across the confidence intervals, therefore it's statistically significant. So what you see with the, with the parent drug is a significant increase in the AUC and Cmax. And if you look at the metabolite, you see a significant fall in the metabolite. Where did this study lead to and its conclusions? This study led to the labelling of venetoclax when it was approved that you should not use azoles in the ramp up phase as they call it where they start low in the, the dose up to try to avoid the TLS and if you're going to use it, uh, azoles in, in the, in the um, maintenance phase they advise you to dose reduce by a, a factor of at least 2 or 3. So inherent to these types of studies is they often influence guidance about dosing. So that's the story of venetoclax. I want to tell you another story now and this is going to use a slightly different paradigm for looking at drug-drug interactions and I'm going to use another drug. Again, all these studies were performed here in collaboration with my colleagues in the Hemonc section and also with the research staff in the, in the cancer center and the majority of patients were actually either in the infusion room or in, admitted to uh, 1 west so lapatinib uh, a drug you some of you may be familiar with it's an oral egfr inhibitor uh, one of the first generation it's currently approved uh, in combination with capecitabine for patients with metastatic breast cancer and looking at the in vitro data uh, suggested in human liver um, uh, preparations that there was an inhibitory effect on CYP3A4 at about 4 micromolar. Knowing that the c max of Lepatinib at standard doses of about 1200 milligrams a day was 7 micromolar, there was concern that this would cause inhibition of CYP3A and potentially cause drug drug interaction. So the hypothesis we were testing was that essentially Lepatinib would inhibit 3A And there would be drug-drug interactions if other drugs were concomitant medications were going through that pathway with the likelihood that you could develop toxicity from those other drugs. So we wanted in this case to look at the in vivo effect of Lepatinib on CYP3A activity, but we weren't doing it directly. We were using a drug that you're fairly familiar with, Midazolam, Versed, Um, we generally, Dave and I, much prefer to use the generic terms because, A, the drugs, if they are generic, are much less effective. The other thing is, Versid never tells you anything. And even I can convince some radiologists who I know quite well that if you look at the suffix, it sometimes helps you figure out, because I tried it on her one day. I said, okay, you're a radiologist. You don't really prescribe anything decent. Um you know, what do you think about the new drugs called moxifloxacin in Gata? I said, what are you talking about? Are you, are you talking Welsh? And I said, no, I'm talking about generic drug names. And she said, oh, floxus is something like cipro. And where I'm going with this comment is, if you look at the suffix of the generic, it guides you to the class much more directly than any of the trade names. So we use midazolam, which is a benzodiazepine, as a probe substrate because it's, almost entirely metabolized by CYP3A. And you might be saying, okay, so what's a probe drug? And this, Kelly, is where I saw I'm advocating the use off-label, but this is in a research arena. So here's midazolam, and its metabolism is primarily through CYP3A hydroxylation, then it's glucuronidated, and then it's thrown out in the kidney. And we use it and measure it as a, a measure of activity of CYP3A. And that's a fairly standard paradigm for using a single probe drug. So we used a, what they call a four-period, four-sequence, four-treatment crossover, and the study schema is a bit more complicated. So the patients in this study, all of whom had cancer, all of whom were going to be treated uh, with, with this paradigm, they were randomized to either get three milligrams of oral and then a couple of days later get IV. They were then put on a higher-than-standard dose of lapatinib and we'd swap over the regimen oral IV. They could either have the oral first or the IV first and then swap them around. Um, they were randomized to these sequences, but they'd all get both without lopatinib, both with lopatinib. We treated about 23 patients on this, on this study, um, and they were all fairly advanced tumors. They all had good heart cardiac function because lepatnib can cause a cardiomyopathy, because the target, the EGFR target is actually co-expressed on myocardia, myocytes. And they were not taking any other inducers or inhibitors. They were not drinking the famous grapefruit juice or any other juices, pomela juice, star fruit juice. Uh, many fruits actually have this grapefruit-like effect, and they were not on any herbs. We basically were interested in looking at the midazolam plasma concentrations up to 24 hours post-administration. We didn't actually measure them here, but they were measured using LC mass spec, mass spec, So this was our patient population, 24 patients. We had a predominantly Caucasian group, mix of tumors, obviously breast tumors, primarily because the drug was going to be likely licensed for breast cancer, but also a spread of other solid tumors. The results... This is the primary uh, endpoint. Here you can see the, the log of plasma concentration versus time. And let's take the uh, intravenous medazolam alone curve, which are the open circles here, and then the, the IV plus lepatnib curve. This is the medazolam concentrations. If you then look at the oral alone and the oral with lepatnib, you can see that generally there are some slight shifts, but it isn't a massive effect. Um, if you look at the parameters and focus on the medazlam lepapinib to medazlam ratio, you can see that basically there's a sort of 20 to 40 percent increase on average um, in in the Cmax area under the curve, and the half-life changes as well. And if you look if you look at the more detailed stuff with the IV. The IV data is, it does not reach statistical significance. So the bottom line here is that from the perspective of this potential drug-drug interaction, um, it looks as if there's more of an effect on oral medications that go through the CYP3A pathway if you combine the with them. The patients actually tolerated the drugs pretty well. These, these symptoms of GI anemia and, and are very, very common with these EGFR inhibitors. We really had didn't have much of an effect. There were some patients with stable disease, uh, but the bottom line was the primary objective of the study was not efficacy. It was a pharmacokinetic variable. And this went into the labeling. Uh, Essentially, there was moderate inhibition of enteric. Remember, 3A4 is expressed on the gut epithelium and in the liver. It's expressed in both. It's there to protect us from noxious xenobiotics. And it's a weak, basically there's weak inhibition of hepatic, but more inhibition of or, uh, GI, CYP3A4. And the, the recommendation was you only adjust doses for orally administered drugs that are um, with narrow therapeutic indices, such as things like maybe, um, let's see, cyclosporine would be an example from the immunophilins if it would be co-administered, or some of the HIV drugs as well. So that was this, that's the sort of probe drug analysis using the probe drug to tell us what, what sort of magnitude of effect that you're going to get. Now, I want to tell you about a thing which is the complicated probe studies. And these are complicated because we use multiple probes. Um, it's called the Cooperstown cocktail because this was, dis- this was really ge- the it, data supporting the use of all of these drugs as probe drugs. Remember, we're only giving single, or one or two doses of the probe. Okay, and comparing probe on its own to probe with the drug you think it interacts. So we use midazolam, again, for CYP3A. We look at dextromethorphan for 2D6. We look at caffeine for 1A2. We look at omeprazole for 2C19, and we look at warfarin for 2C9. And you think, my God, poor patients. They're taking all these medications, but they're only single doses separated by a period of time. However, in the Lewis household... Some of us prefer different cocktails. Now, some of us are not as pure as others. So my good friend and wife prefers this type of stuff, this mixture of gin and various other things with fruit and all that stuff. Not so sure about that. And as Dave alluded to, it wasn't just colic that raised my interest in clinical pharmacology. I think unbeknown to my parents and unbeknown to my grandmother or my mother, my asthma used to get bad, as many people do, when they're in a cold, windy climate. The northeast wind would come down, you'd go out in it, as you know very well, cold-induced bronchospasm, right? I'm not sure that my 89-year-old grandmother, or my mother at the time, was fully aware that not glenphidic, because we didn't have it, we had a thing, probably something in the order of Johnny's White Label or something, would give me a small amount of whiskey whenever it was a cold, windy day and I had to walk to school. They definitely were not aware of the bronchodilatory effects of ethanol. I can assure you of that. Now, not that my wife gets asthma, but my, per- my more direct sport is really to take a mixture of cocktails that are more of the polyphenol type and drink smoky, direct malt whiskey. And this guy, this guy Lagavulin, is one of the most pitiest. It has about 50 parts per million of polyphenols. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't win the world record. But Petra prefers this stuff, which I don't think is very good. And I prefer this stuff as my cocktail. Anyway, to, going back to our cocktails, so now I'm going to tell you a story about pazopinib. Pazopanib is an oral VEGF inhibitor, VEGF TKI. Um, it was studied by us and many others and eventually was approved because there was a big change of about six or eight months in med, uh, median uh, progression-free survival and overall survival in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And it was approved in 2009, but it's also approved more recently for soft tissue sarcomas, oral medication, uh, Taken once a day, as with most of these vegftkis, uh, it's not as totally specific, but it's pretty potent. They cause GI side effects. They push your blood pressure up. Many of my patients complained that their hair was getting white or silvery, which is an interesting phenomenon. They can get a renal, renal syndrome, hepatitis. Uh, a lot of patients complain of fatigue, actually, and bone marrow suppression. So those are the sort of side effects you get with chronic treatment. Um, but where we were interested was we were interested in this, the pharmacology again. Relatively long half-life, which is easy to handle, metabolized by CYP3A, but also lesser t- metabolism through 2C8 and 1A2. The trough concentrations were pretty high and therefore exceeded what we thought would potentially cause drug-drug interactions based on our human liver uh, preparations. And in vitro, you can see that the IC50s for the various SIPs using these human uh, uh, hepatocyte preparations were all in the sort of single-digit to maybe teen micromolar, which is exceeded by the trough concentrations. So we were really concerned that there there was potential for inhibition of drug metabolism here. So we we went, and our hypothesis was at steady state, there would be drug uh, inhibition of these SIPs, in cancer patients, and we were going to use the cocktail, i.e. the Cooperstown cocktail, not the Lewis cocktail, um, to actually interrogate this potential drug-drug interaction. The study is, is a complicated paradigm, and I'm going to spend a minute or two describing it, just because it, it is pretty complex. And I have, to, I have to say all along, the patients who engage in these studies are incredibly invested in the study. They, they do it with the foreknowledge that they may not benefit. But their question that is, is, is perpetually brought up to me is, even if it doesn't benefit me, will, it, will the information benefit some others? And the answer is, we will understand more about the drug, and it will, may well benefit others because we can use the drug more optimally. So what happens in this particular study is we give midazolam on the first day, and we do the PK, and then we give this cocktail of drugs, caffeine, looking at 1A2, dextromethorphan, 2D6, and 2C19, warfarin, 2C9, and we follow the PK in the blood and urine of warfarin and meprosol in blood and dextromethorphane and caffeine in the urine. That washes out by about day six. We start pazoponib here, which is, in this case, going to be the perpetrator, and the victim is going to be these probes, And then we do the same paradigm again after uh, our pisopinib has reached steady state. We do the second period where we give midazolam and then the cocktail, and we do the PK. Then the patients can move on to standard treatment with the drug and see if it's effective from the point of view, and tolerated from the point of view of an anti-tumor effect. We treated 20-odd patients. Uh, actually, this was in collaboration with a group in Singapore. Uh, the demographics are here, sort of typical age range, breadth of tumors, uh, colorectal, renal, and lung.
0: <coughs> Basically,
1: all the patients have normal renal function, normal liver function. They don't have any evidence of GI disease. And there is an extensive list of drugs that they can't be on because you don't want them on drugs that will affect the probe drugs. So they have to come off all the inhibitors and inducers, and you have to sort of ensure that they're not on them. So that's quite, shall I say, uh, a task to to make sure the patients are not on concomitant meds that are going to potentially influence the data that you get from the study. Um, I'll show you the midazolam data first of all, which we're now looking at this. What is the activity of the CYP3A enzymes? In, in this case, uh, we can see that this is midazolam alone, this is the whole cohort, this is the median, and this is with presoponib. Really, it's a, maybe a small effect, but it's not that big. Um, if you look at the data, you can see that we get maybe a sort of 30% change in the area under the curve in Cmax, not a huge change. If we look at omeprazole, there wasn't very much change there. It didn't, meet, uh, didn't It crosses one in the confidence intervals, and the same is true for the, for the uh, um, me, me, omeprazole metabolite. If you look at caffeine, uh, really we didn't see any significant uh, effect on caffeine, caffeine uh, metabolism or warfarin. So it doesn't look as if it's affecting 1A2 and certainly 2C9. But where there was some evidence of what looked appeared to be more of an effect is it appears that there was an effect on the ratio of the SIP or the activity of CYP2D6 converting dextromethorphan to dextromethorphan, maybe a 30 to 60% increase uh, in the amount uh, of parent drug not being metabolized. So it was, we actually genotyped the patients as well, and it looks as if the patients, remember there are four classes of CYP2D6 patients sitting around this room or sitting in New Hampshire as a population, as a Caucasian, the numbers hang out like this, About 1 in 12 of Caucasians are poor metabolizers. They will not tolerate standard doses of drugs that go through this pathway. Then you have about 30% of patients who are intermediate and about 30%, 35% of patients who are extensive. Those guys probably can tolerate standard doses. And then right at the other spectrum, you have a group of what we call ultra-rapid metabolizers. These guys have multiple copies of the gene anything up to 13 copies of CYP2D6. So they will handle the drug more rapidly than ever, and therefore standard doses for that group will actually be subtherapeutic. Um, in the Caucasian population, around here we actually studied it, there's about 2 to 3% of CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizers, comparing to 1 in 12 patients who are poor metabolizers. In the Egyptian population, for evolutionary reasons, possibly environmentally driven, one in three patients are ultra-rapid metabolizers. So they will require high doses of drugs that go down this pathway to be therapeutic. And where I'm going with this is, it looks as if, in fact, the ultra-rapid metabol, the extra uh, extensive metabolizers, this effect is most marked but we have a very, very heterogeneous population. The the medication itself didn't give us any surprises. Um, And the bottom line is, in the labeling, the drug when it was approved, the study sort of now says little or no effect on 3A, little or no effect on 1A2, 2C19, uh, 2C9, but it looks as if there's a small effect on 2D6 substrates. So just be careful. So... Those are the sort of three paradigms that we use in drug development to evaluate and try to get and an, uh, an assess the magnitude of likely drug-drug interactions in our patient population. Where I want to go in the last few minutes is to tell you about some work I've been doing at the national level with the Alliance in uh, Clinical Oncology. This is an uh, intergroup. It's an NCI intergroup. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to be one of the co-chairs or study co-chairs for a large study. And where I'm going with this is I want to show you how collecting samples that relate not just to DNA, but samples or very sparse sampling of pharmacokinetics, and no, f- monitoring the patients carefully for toxicity and efficacy, we can actually understand uh, better uh, the outcomes of these studies. So this is the study, and I'll, I'll take you through this in some detail because some of you may not be as familiar with these agents uh, as our oncology colleagues are. So the study was a massive study, phase three study of enzalutamide and enzalutamide plus abiraterone. This is a, essentially androgen receptor inhibitor or uh, antagonist, and this is a, uh, t- uh, a reproductive testosterone uh, enzymatic inhibitor, specifically of the CYP2, CYP2C17 lyase uh, and also the beta-hydroxylase. So the comparison was this alone versus this combination, which are better in castrate-resistant prostate cancer? Standard dose of enzalutamide, standard dose of enzalutamide, and then enz- abiraterone plus prednisone, because this blocks not just the the, the production of testosterone, it also blocks the uh, the production of other corticosteroid hormones as well. So you're trying to avert um, problems with uh, adrenal insufficiency. Massive study, 612 patients per hour, one-to-one randomization. Um, The primary endpoints were overall survival and progression-free survival. Secondary evaluations were PSA, not surprisingly, Sodium fluoride PET-CT, circulating tumor cells, angiokines, basically all the different uh, pro-angiogenic factors, VEGF, pro-VEGF, VEGF-ABC, et cetera, uh, angiokinin, angio- angiopoietin, et cetera, measuring the hormones. And we inserted a PK component and a pharmacogenomic uh, component. And there was rationale for this um, that sort of suggested that this study might not give us the answer that we would like. And the answer that the hypothesis was that this combination arm would have a better primary endpoint, survival and PFS, than single agent. So just to give you a background of the pharmacology, which made us think that maybe this isn't going to pan out, um, standard dosing, uh, it has a long half-life, which is good for, for population of pharmacokinetics, sparse, sparse sampling, long-acting metabolite, very uh, very highly bound to protein, but also uh, there's no major effect of food on, on zelutamide. The clearance is mainly CYP2C8, but also a little bit by 3A4. Not a lot of parent drug found in the urine. Hepatic, microsomal c- preparations suggest some inhibition, but really the 2C8 was not the most potent. And it was felt to be a weak inhibitor of SIPs. However, in those hepatic preparations, enzalutamide was found to be as potent as rifampin and many other of our known drug inducers of hepatic metabolism. So you can think of this like rifampin. You can think of it like uh, some of the other agents that we think of, some of the anti-seizure agents like phenobarb, um, some of the carbamazepine and also some of the um, uh, anti-HIV agents like nevirapine, but it is a very potent in- 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 inducer. If you look at abiraterone, again, we're using standard doses. Half-life is reasonably long for once-a-day dosing. One of the things in the, in the real world is that if you take it with food, there is a huge increase in the amount of drug that gets into the body, mm-hmm. and therefore the, the labeling is to take it without food because it's, it's, it's less variable. But if you take it with food, you probably can at least go down to a quarter of the dose. It's, um, S, it's a pro-drug, and is, is esterase hydrolysis to the parent drug. This guy is metabolized predominantly by a phase two enzyme and CYP3A4, little or none in the urine. If you look here, there's some suggestion it's a CYP2C8 inhibitor. Remember, CYP2C8 involved in enzalutamide, but it's not a, not a very potent one. So, Our hypothesis was the following. We felt, based on the preclinical data, that there was a likelihood for enzalutamide to induce the metabolism of abiraterone and make it less effective. And there was a potential but lesser so effect that abiraterone may inhibit the metabolism of enzalutamide. If you put these two together, it suggests that the combination arm won't have any benefit over this monotherapy arm. We wanted to look at area under the curve, we wanted to look at toxicity, response, exposure, and we wanted to look at pharmacogenomics because there is a, a variant in the tar- one of the target enzymes for abiraterone that is less effective and is likely to lead to inferior overall survival. We inserted a DNA sample, which you can take any time during the study, and we put in a PK sample. The patients were being seen monthly, and we just ha- asked that they have single blood draw every time they came to clinic, but that they didn't take their drugs on the day they came to clinic, and we had timing of the drugs the day before. So we call that c or C-min. Um, and we were able to achieve phenomenal um, compliance with this proposal. Um, as I mentioned to you, the study eventually closed with 1,311 patients, randomized one-to-one. We were able to obtain... Pharmacogenomic DNA on about 960 patients. Um, we actually have genotyped this using genomoid association studies, not us. This was done because of a very, very uh, productive collaboration with the Riken Institute in Japan, which is sort of equivalent to the NIH. Um, and Riken used this particular platform to basically look for a million SNPs. in in the patient's genomes. We also have PK samples at each visit over the first six months in about 1,000 patients. So we were able to get single blood draws on the morning that they came to clinic in about 1,000 patients. And this gave us just over 5,000 samples. We've, We've completed the assays. And we now have a unique data set where in 930 of these patients almost, we have genomic data, we have pharmacokinetic data, whether they're on a single agent or two agents, and we have outcome data of toxicity, overall survival, and, and progression-free survival. I can tell you, and I'm not in any way sort of um, breaking any proprietary information, um, the study, as we would, as we thought, did not show any difference between the two arms, and we think the reason is. We will be able to define the reason based on this information. There's going to be PK interactions. It's likely that we'll find that abiraterone was not therapeutic. Um, we do not have that analysis fully worked out yet because it is complicated, to say the least. We need to do population pharmacokinetic modeling using uh, nonlinear mixed effect modeling. We, we have got drug levels of the parent and the metabolite. We have concentrations of abiraterone. We have pharmacodynamic toxicity measurements, patients tolerated the drug, fatigue, hypertension, uh, did they have nausea, did they have flushing, et cetera. We have overall survival, progression-free survival, we've got all these biomarkers. And this is, this is going to, if Dave and I have nothing to do in the next 10 years, uh, we'll be occupied doing this, evaluating this data, which I think will help explain the overall primary objective, not reaching its intended goal. Um, Outcome. So, in the last couple of minutes, and that will give us time for a good time for questions. As usual, some of us in clinical pharmacology believe that understanding the clinical pharmacology principles is really the way to understand and study drug drug interactions. Um, the drug drug interaction information that is generated pre- in the clinical development of these new drugs is pivotal to using the drugs optimally. And then in the clinic, using the guidances around it. And then finally, I'd like to remind you that we started off talking about a drug that was an anti-surviving. Well, I hate to tell you, clinical pharmacologists are more like the protein themselves, and surviving really is a protein that allows the cells to survive, and we are not like the dinosaurs, and we're not going to just disappear and become extinct. So with that, I'd like to acknowledge, first of all, <coughs> first of all the patients who are involved in these studies, which is massive. The commitment of these patients to do these intensive studies above and beyond their regular therapy is just remarkable. And their families, because often or not they are supported by a caregiver. Obviously, my colleagues in the HEMONC teams, the research staff at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, particularly the coordinators and the research nurses, and also the, the colleagues and friends I have in the alliance that have allowed me to participate in that national study I'm sorry I can't tell you the results of all those analyses because they're ongoing and it's a team of people that are undertaking them. Uh, specialists in using non-MEM, pharmacogeneticists, and we're collating the, the data now. But there's enough data there to, to write several papers. And then finally, um, I thought I'd change what I'd ask you. Diolch silu is one of my sort of uh, part of my native languages, which means for those outside the 250,000 people who can speak Welsh. And I recently was in Patagonia, but didn't meet any Welsh-speaking people. But there is also, this means, thank you for your attention, I'm happy to answer questions, but the reason I mention Patagonia is there's actually a small town called Tre Lewis, which translated means Lewis Town, in Patagonia in Argentina. So with that, I'll wind up, we have... Several minutes for questions. I'm happy to answer them, and I thank you for your attention again.
0: Sure. Thank you so much. Um, that was great. I have one question, two questions, kind of about the prostate cancer study. Yes. Um, I'm sure there was an age range, mm-hmm. and these were all castrate resistant. Yep. Been treated yep. and treated with anti-androgens, which have a marked sarcopenic effect, mm-hmm. have you, and there is some data that the SIP system may change with age. Absolutely. So have there been, and, but often these studies age is controlled for, instead of looking at stratified analysis, which may show that maybe not overall, but by age,
1: there so, could be... Sure, I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, I know certainly the, the, per, the uh, patient demographics are all built into the collection. Many of the guys here, actually, the GU oncologists actually participate in that study, and you have to fill in all the demographics of the patients, including their BMI, including their height and their weight, and their age is in there. So those types of subgroup analyses and stratification is, can probably go on. I can tell you that the, the clinical results of, of that particular study at the end of this month. Um, as regards, you're absolutely right about the SIPs slowly becoming less effective with age. It appears though that, that big changes don't occur until their parents are about 80 years of age. I mean, there is, there is a, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a step function, but it really doesn't see... There's so much variability in, in, the, in these enzymes and the, the capacity of these enzymes that the sort of change really doesn't become noticeable until people are octogenarians. Now, the question is, are we studying people in their 80s and 90s and 100? And the answer is we should be going forward. So the data will be there for us to look at this, and, and, we, and with the numbers that we've got, because we have literally got 600 patients plus in each group, and we have data, this sophisticated data set of PK, pharmacogenetics, and all the demographics, this is going to be a huge resource to look into as, as to why this didn't pan out. So your point is well taken. Sure. Uh, that was really
0: very interesting. I was interesting in the Dazolam studies you were showing that the IV Dazolam sort of handled differently. Or- a different effect on the CYP enzymes than the oral. Yeah. You know, the simplistic view is one comes from the portal circulation, one comes from Correct. the But beyond
1: that, why are they handled differently? Are they delivered to the cells? Or does the GI tract do something? So the GI tract actually has CYP3A4 in it. So the issue is there's a sort of double barrier. Our, our evolution of these particular sets of enzymes, they're there to protect us from dirty chemicals, bottom line. Drugs the body sees them as dirty chemicals so the GI tract has in fact CYP3A4 particularly in the small intestine it's also got 2D6 so there's an intestinal 3A4 and there's a hepatic 3A4 and the point that the study was drawing out was it's more of an effect on the GI 3A4 than on the hepatic <coughs> 3A4 ok thanks sure sorry sir.
0: Thoughts on intentionally taking advantage of some of these interactions, like having patients take abiraterone with food, so that you can cut their dose by two, two to three quarters, and saving the healthcare system money. Is that um, too
1: risky, or so? There were, so no, it's not. I mean, it's a great question. It, it's being it's being addressed. Actually, there was a a small phase two study run out of uh, Chicago where they looked at, uh, they randomized people to either take the standard dose of abiraterone, or abiraterone with a sort of McMuffin um, and reduce the dose to a quarter. And they found that in that study, and I think there was about 60 or 70 patients, about 35 each group, there was absolutely no difference in the efficacy markers, one of PSA and two of progression-free survival in prostate cancer patients. So the answer is people are looking into it, but one of the difficulties is it is such a variable effect for any one individual. And we don't know for that individual how much, how much of an effect you're going to get, unless you do some drug monitoring, which may be the way forward. But you're right. You could save, I mean, abiraterone probably costs somewhere in the region of three to $4,000 a month. Um, you could cut that to a quarter and save, the health, save our patients and the healthcare system a lot of money? The answer is, it's not an accepted paradigm right now, but there are groups that are actually looking into it. Needless to say, the drug company is not. Uh, but there are groups that are looking into it as to say, how do we actually reduce, not just dosing, but costs, and at the same time potentially look at whether we reduce toxicity as well. Well, so it's
0: interesting, I don't know, that sometimes drug companies will price a lower dose, and a higher dose tablet the same to dissuade patients from purchasing the higher right. and then splitting it yeah. and saving. So sometimes it looks attractive, but drug companies rig it so it isn't so You're right, you're right. So Lionel, you, pharmacogenomics are sort of alluded to and uh, all throughout your talk. And so one of the questions I had is, and I think you made some mention to this what were the drivers of ch- different um, mutations that have occurred in these various genes and in different regions of the world? Do we have any idea? What oh, you, wh- wh-
1: why, what, yeah, I mean, why do the Egyptians end up with a third of their p- population having this massive number of copies of 2D6? I, I, I honestly think it's got to be and a response to something in the environment, whether it's their exposure to certain environmental chemicals, whether it's a co-exposure to some sort of parasitic issues that they see. I'm not sure, but I think it's environmentally driven so that in their environment they survive better with that number of genes and that genetic variant. So I think it's driven by predominant environment, over hundreds of thousands of years probably.
0: So we don't understand what the driver was. It's not we, do, like, we, we don't know. Like malaria and no,
1: it's, it's, it's not. We, don't, we haven't got that pinned down is the answer right now. Because if you look across other, other um, populations, there's variable amount. There's different numbers of pure p- metabolizers in Asia to Caucasians. So it's, it's very much a mix of it could be the foods. It could be our microbiome. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't think we understand it well enough, uh, William, to, to say, hey, this is what's driven it. My personal viewpoint coming from Wales is I actually think it's got to be a survival advantage because <laughs> that's why we, we manage to survive. Um,
0: time for one more question if there is one. <coughs> Myl, I wanted to maybe you could address very quickly as our last question. I think Rich Comey was asking about the difference between IV and oral drugs and the effect on gut, mucosa versus liver. Maybe you'd like to just uh, say something we didn't talk about today, which is transporter proteins and how that seems to be important whether you're getting at IV or orally. Yeah, I
1: mean, um, there's transporter proteins that are on the GI epithelium. Probably the one that people are most familiar with is what we used to call P-glycoprotein, now also known as MDR1, but it's an ABC cassette protein called ABCG2. Um, the scientists have decided to confuse everybody by changing the names of the same protein. Um, and the reality is there are, there are efflux transporters on the, in the outside of the outer border of the GI tract, and those efflux transporters are also on the biliary systems. So when you get biliary excretion, those transporters are actually transporting the drugs into the bile when you get biliary excretion of drugs. So those are present there. The, the, the probe drug itself that we used here uh, medazolam isn't a substrate for, for those particular transporters Some, many drugs are and they're, they're, we've talked about we focused on, or this discussion is focused on SIPs and I think this is the thing that Dave's coming to is we, t- we think we've got a better handle around the SIP, SIP drug interactions but what Dave's talking about is there are also drug-drug interactions where a drug inhibits the transporters actually as well as the SIPs and that contributes to the drug-drug interaction as well Um, In fact, what I should have mentioned is I I used azoles as my prime example of a CYP3A inhibitor. It's actually a pretty dirty inhibitor because it inhibits multiple CYPs, and it actually does uh, inhibit PGP as well. So some of these effects are not just solely on the CYPs. They're also on the, the transporters, which are expressed both in gut and in the biliary system.
0: Well, Lionel, we want to thank you again for showing us how this work that you're doing, sometimes first-time-a-man or pharmacokinetic studies, is actually starting to inform a variety of other patients as well. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.